0: It's good to be with you today. Stacy and I always look forward to coming up here and love being with you guys. Despite the fact that this morning, I think I'm missing a bunch of kindergarteners on stage at Christ's Covenant. So um, I always love that um, and laugh my way through that time. But um, we're happy to be with you this morning. The Bible is a, a corporate book. It's uh, it's meant to be shared by the community of God. It was written always with the community of God in mind, uh, written to the people of God as a whole. And so while we love meditating on God's word individually, it's so fitting that we would gather to have um, our minds and hearts shaped by the word of God this morning. So it's in that spirit of wanting as a church to submit ourselves to the word and uh, to have it shape our lives that will come to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 18. As we prepare our hearts for Christmas, we want to consider this passage, uh, which explains to us why Christmas happened, why Christ came into the world. This thought ought to regularly jolt us that God entered creation. You know, if planet Earth and all of creation, the whole universe, existed in original perfection, you know, just an ideal state of innocence, mint condition, it would be amazing enough that God would deign to enter that which was so far beneath him. We have corrupted what he has made, though. We have made misery out of his perfections and chaos out of his order. So why would the creator become one with creation, makes no sense. Um, The artist Rembrandt uh, was famous for his self-portraits and invested them with a pioneering degree of realism and yet even Rembrandt would never have chosen to become the painting itself, even if he could. Why would the creator become creation? And the atmosphere that Jesus entered, of course, was not uncorrupted. It was our mess, our mud puddle that he stepped into, the perfect world that we have ruined. Why would Jesus come and uh, experience the the simple discomforts of infancy leading to the complex discomforts of adulthood, ending in a tortuous death under a totalitarian regime? Why would he do this? Well, Hebrews two fourteen through 18 answers this question in two ways. It says, first, that Jesus shared in flesh and blood to deliver, to destroy the devil and deliver those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery. And then, secondly, that he came to sympathize with us and to suffer alongside creation. So we'll consider these verses both this week and next week. This week considering uh, the Christ who came to destroy the devil and deliver us from fear of death. And then next week meditating on our Savior who came to sympathize with us and to suffer alongside of us. Well Hebrews 2 as a whole, this, this whole chapter addresses the earthly existence of Jesus. So the first half of the chapter quotes Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is a messianic psalm, one of those songs of ancient Israel that points forward to a coming king. And Psalm 8 says, what is the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. And then Hebrew says that that is pointing to Jesus. He is the son of man. He is the one who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Why? Well Hebrews goes on to say that this happened so that by the grace of God he might taste death for the benefit of everybody. Well how does it benefit everybody that Jesus would taste of the flavor of death? Well that's what verses 14 through 18 explains. How it benefited us that Jesus died. So listen as I read beginning in verse 14. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So focusing on verses 14 through 16 this morning, we have two reasons presented to us that Christ shared in flesh and blood. And the first of those two reasons is that he came to destroy the devil. He came to destroy the devil, the one having the power of death. So verse 14 again says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. This is one of the most important parts of the Bible that talks about the incarnation. God entering the human space as a human. And as you might expect, Hebrews presents this movement of God into creation as being very intentional. You know, other children are born. Most children are wholly passive at their birth, right? Well, Jesus, too, was born, but he also came. He was not only born, he chose birth. And he chose not only to be born, but he chose His place of birth, he chose his family, his education and occupation, his friendships, and even the circumstances leading to his death. What if you, before birth, could have planned out all the details of your life? What would you have chosen for yourself? You see, Christmas was God's decision to suffer alongside creation, It was his decision to choose for himself a life of suffering in Jesus, the Son. He partook of flesh and blood so that through death, he chose death. But notice that that death was not actually the goal, but death was rather the means of accomplishing the goal. The goal was actually something different. The goal was destroying the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. So if we're going to make any progress in understanding why Christ came, then we need to stop and talk about the devil. Hebrews treats the devil as a very legitimate reality. In fact, the necessary reason that Christ came was to destroy the devil. So when was the last time you thought about the devil? You know, how often do you acknowledge his presence and hear the power that he has? The Bible refers to the devil in various ways. Here, the word devil means accuser or slanderer. He's called the tempter in Matthew 4. The name Satan uh, means enemy. And in Revelation, he receives the nickname Apollyon, which means the destroyer. And in different cultures and times in history, the church has given more or less attention to the devil. Um, In our culture, the West, in 2014, the church tends to give less attention to the devil. We're a highly technological society, data-oriented. You know, cause and effect is always explained in terms of economic models and endless scientific studies. Tragedies are blamed on the government or lack of education. But it hasn't always been this way. In, In Europe, five or 600 years ago, superstition was pervasive propagated especially by the Roman Catholic Church. Tragedy was often blamed on rogue angels, and most of the ordinary events of life were governed by superstition. Um, Business transactions were not entered into on certain days of the year, especially three particular Mondays, especially the first Monday of April. Um, Never enter into business transactions on those days. So the Roman Catholic Church, to eradicate the idea of evil days, Uh, dedicated each day of the year to one or more saints who could be prayed to for blessing. They were ironically fighting superstition with more superstition. This is the kind of ironic situation that Erasmus mocked in his famous work, In Praise of Folly. But it seems that where education thrives, superstition dies. So I was listening to NPR the other day, and they were reporting on fan death. I'm sure you've heard of that, right? Um, I never had, actually, but evidently in South Korea there's uh, a belief that if you sleep in an enclosed room with uh, like a ceiling fan or some kind of house fan running, uh, pointing at you, then you'll die. Um, Well, evidently, uh, superstition, right? Propagated probably by some desire to curb energy consumption, and yet this superstition has gripped the entire nation. So NPR's conclusion to the whole thing was, at least on this point, the South Koreans need more education. Some scientific studies need to be done. Uh, Sometimes I feel like that's the answer given to every problem in the world. We believe that science kills superstition and science will solve all problems. Well, in this context, we may feel awkward or embarrassed at times to admit that we believe in the devil. It's kind of like admitting that you believe in fan death, right? But our tendency has to be undone by this passage in, in Hebrews and other passages throughout Scripture that, teach, that treat the devil as a very uh, real power. It says that the devil is the one who holds the power of death. Meaning that even though we may give infrequent attention to the devil, every death that you've ever witnessed or heard of in your own coming death are his work. It's the power that he holds. The reality couldn't be more plain, and yet we think of it infrequently. And here, Hebrews says that God's whole plan of sending Jesus into the world was to undo his power and bring it to nothing. So the reality, the power of the devil, is something that we have to not gloss over. How much progress would a gardener make who refuses to talk about bugs? We have to speak about our enemy and treat him as a very real present and active danger. So who is the devil? Well, the devil is the one who initiated rebellion against God in an attempt to undo his sovereign rule. So after God had created humanity, there was there was this perfect harmonious relationship between God and Adam and Eve. And the devil was intent on ruining and destroying that as well. And so the devil instigated division between humanity and God by seducing Adam and Eve to join in his rebellion and refusal to honor the Creator. This is how he introduced death to humanity. It was on that day that the power of death began for the devil. And ever since that fateful day, we've all been held under the lure of sin and the certainty of death that follows it. So tragically, human beings who were destined by God to rule over creation are now enslaved, paralyzed by the fear of death. We are Adam's children in every way. Especially in this fact that we're under the blinding deceit of the devil that leads to death. The devil's work takes three characteristic forms. First, he's a tempter. The devil is a tempter. So through our fallen nature, he's able to, to some degree, direct and, and, and bend our voluntary actions to do his will. Not, not quite like a puppet on a string or the devil made me do it, but maybe analogous to a fisherman who has a fish on the line and is able by the movements of the pole to, to direct the voluntary movements of the fish to do what he wants. The devil holds the power of death and that he so easily persuades us to do all of those kinds of things that lead to death. He tempts us, and he tries to get us to behave in destructive ways. So the devil's a tempter. Second, the devil is an accuser. He's an accuser. Constantly, he seeks to turn your perceptions of yourself into a caricature. Exaggerated faults, obscured virtues, the devil is always accusing us in our minds. He whispers in your ear about your sin patterns. You know, we each have our own, and he, he whispers in your ear about your sin patterns, uh, trying to accuse you, make you believe that you're obligated and under the power of those sins, and that perhaps God will neglect or even destroy you in judgment for those sins. He accuses not only you, but he accuses other people in your mind so that you begin to think of others as a bucket of failures and fail to see the evidences of God's grace in their lives. Again, he, he creates a caricature of other people in your mind, trying to get your mind to fixate on their foibles and think of them as only a bucket of failures so that our hearts start to, start to act like that police officer on the side of the road who's he's sitting there just, just waiting for someone to, to mess up, to make a mistake so that he can get them. I, I don't mind a police officer doing that. But when our hearts do the same thing toward other people, there's a big problem. This is what the devil does to us. He accuses ourselves and he accuses others creating caricatures of them and spoiling relational harmony this is how he creates conflict in marriages and in the church he's trying to get us to feel destructive emotions anger and self-righteousness toward others and depression about our own condition he's an accuser and third he's a liar he's a liar in John 8:44 Jesus says when the devil lies he speaks his native, his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. One author, uh, Richard Lovelace, said, Just as in any efficient dictatorship, the devil seeks to control the media. He seeks to block the broadcast of truth and to insert and energize whatever is morally degrading and conducive to unbelief. He wants you to misunderstand the word of God and to misapply it in your own life. So he wants to ruin your belief and he wants to ruin not only your belief but the beliefs of whole institutions and denominations. So he is constantly lying and, and using the culture around us to make us believe untrue things. Have you ever seen an organization shift in policy where they begin to affirm something that the Bible uh, that is contradictory to the Bible or they begin to reject something that the Bible affirms? How does that happen? How does that happen in our own lives? How does it happen in institutions? We are saturated in the culture and by it the devil dulls our discernment so that we begin to believe things that are not true. It's not a conscious decision. We just kind of move along with the culture and believing things that are contrary to Scripture and one day we wake up and find we believe a lie. The devil is constantly trying to get us to believe destructive things. So the reason I say all this is to point out that even as you think about it briefly, you can no doubt discover some of these patterns at work in your own life. And all of these things lead to death. These are the tools that the devil employs in the power of death. Lying, tempting, accusing, these are the composite material of which the power of death is made. And he doesn't just do this at an individual level. I mean, think of all the evil in the world, systemic racism and human trafficking, pornography and the degradation of women, the destruction and brutality of ISIS, indifference to the plight of orphans in the world, the kind of economic systems that stifle those on the lower rung, ambition in politics that creates gridlock rather than constructive benefit for all. You know, all of this forms the water that we swim in. The, the devil is the ultimate oppressor whose bitter tyranny shapes our daily experience. We live in a broken and messed up world and he loves to just nurture that misery. This is how the devil works, but but Hebrews says that Jesus came to break the power of the devil, to destroy the one having the power of death. And First John three eight agrees with this when it says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And in First Timothy or Second Timothy chapter one. Paul says that God, in his grace, made Jesus manifest so that, again, bringing the gospel to light, he might abolish death and bring life and immortality to light. Jesus is the conqueror, the victorious warrior who defeats the devil for our benefit. In other words, all of the devilish work in your own heart and life and in the world, the power plug has been pulled on all of that. The devil has no power in these ways anymore. If Jesus rose from the dead, undoing the power of the devil, pulling the rug out from under his feet, then we have some victory to claim. I mean, you see the point for yourself, right? All that tempting and accusing and lying that the devil is doing, we have victory through Christ over those things. So in Paul's, letters, uh, Paul's letter to Romans, he discusses this very fact and the benefits that Christ's death and victory over sin brings to the individual who is united to Christ. In fact, Romans 6 is maybe one of the clearest passages in the Bible about application of this truth for the individual, that Christ has undone the power of the devil. Romans 6 6 says, we know that our old Our old self, our old nature was crucified with Christ on the cross in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. In other words, when Christ died on the cross, the power of sin died with him, it was brought to nothing. So in the same way that death had no dominion over him, sin has no dominion over you. His resurrection power over death ensured your daily life power over sin. When Jesus rose from the dead, a whole new world rose with him, rose with him in which the, 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 uh, the powers, the spiritual dynamics of, of death were disarmed and destroyed. At the deepest level, the oppressive rule of this occupying power of darkness has been undone. So Paul then goes on to say in Romans 6, in light of all this, you have to to think on this. You have to think of yourselves as being dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. So what should you do about the fact that Jesus has destroyed the one having the power of death? Paul says, think about it. Think about it constantly. Think about the defeated enemy. I I remember when I was in college talking to my dad about this verse in Romans 6, verse 6, where it says, we know that our old self was crucified with him on the cross so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. I remember saying to my dad, you know, I, I, I know I'm trusting in Christ and I believe that this verse is true, but I don't feel that. You know, I don't feel like the body of sin has been brought to nothing. It feels so alive and active in my heart. I feel compelled to do all kinds of things. Well, if you feel that same kind of thing constantly, or even from time to time, that urge to sin, to follow the devil's leading, and giving to all kinds of desires, especially those characteristic desires—you know, anger, lust, envy—how um, do you reconcile the strength of those desires and the apparent power of sin over us? Uh, with what Hebrews 2 says here about the reality that Christ has obliterated the power of the devil. How do you reconcile those two things? Well, I think that one way to, to, to think about the victory that Christ brings is to compare it to the kingdom of God, as, as Jesus describes it in Matthew 13, where, where he says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest seed but when it grows, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. The victory that Christ accomplished is, is like that. It's, it's something that grows steadily throughout the whole life of the one who believes these things. So the victory over the devil is completely true, and yet it's progressively realized in the life of the one who believes these things. It's, you know, it would be nice if... Um, it would be nice if this process looked a little bit more like spiritual liposuction, right? Where God just takes all of those sins that ail us and immediately evacuated them from our lives. That would be wonderful. But that's not how this process works in the grace of God. Instead, the victory of Jesus over the devil as a present reality, it demands our constant meditation. Again, Paul says, consider yourselves dead to sin. Reflect on this. Think about yourselves as being dead to sin. It's only by constantly looking at ourselves as people who have died to sin and been made alive through Christ that this new status that we have by the grace of God will be realized in our lives. It's over time uh, meditating on these things that it will begin to penetrate our consciousness in a way that leads to a change in behavior. So we have to persevere in the vital practice of recitation, rehearsing both individually and corporately these truths to ourselves. The devil has been defeated. His power has been undone. Christ has conquered and assured for us the victory. This kind of language has to easily enter into conversations around the church and, and in our own minds so that Um, so that it it permeates the way that we think about ourselves and about the world we live in. This is what preaching the gospel to yourself is. It's believing these truths and, and, and grabbing onto them in the midst of everyday life. It's rehearsing these truths so regularly that your heart resounds with confidence toward God in the face of the tempter, The one who would bring these temptations and lies and accusations, producing all kinds of sins and things that lead to death. That is what victory over the power of death looks like. Progressive belief and appropriation of these truths in the life of the believer. So, sons and daughters of God, rejoice in this victory that Christ has brought for us. He came to destroy the devil. This passage tells us, secondly, that he came to deliver from the fear of death. Came to destroy the devil and to deliver us from the fear of death, by which we were subjected to lifelong slavery. So again, Jesus came as an infant in flesh and blood, but he came, right? He came intentionally. He, he planned it out, and the accomplishments of his advent bring us cosmic um, benefits. He destroys the devil. He's undone his power. And then Hebrews gives us this next description of why Christ came and, and what he accomplished. He partook of flesh and blood so that through death he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So here we've shifted our perspective just a bit. This isn't really a completely different thing than the destruction of the devil, but kind of just a a different angle from which to view the same victory. So the first angle says the devil has been defeated. The end of the battle is guaranteed. But now the second angle says that victory has some profound benefits for God's troops. So the reality that Jesus destroyed the devil, it's it's a historical reality. That happened. That fact stands. But it's not just a historical reality like a a piece of data on a plaque at the museum that you'd pass by. But it's a a piece of of reality that has kind of a, a reverberating benefit for us today. It continues to benefit us. That's what this is saying, that he delivers us from the fear of death. So notice how Hebrews describes everybody here. Those who are held in slavery by their fear of death throughout all of life. What an insightful comment about the human experience. As I stopped and reflected on this comment this week, it occurred to me that the author of Hebrews, that that God himself was addressing me you know, this is my natural condition, the state into which I was born. Slavery to the fear of death. Not just at moments of crisis, like in the news of cancer or a car accident or some other impending danger, not just at the end of life when you begin to feel the frailty of the body, but, but lifelong, throughout all their lives, were subject to slavery, you know, including toddlers and teenagers and 20-somethings. This, this is for everybody, We are in in slavery to the fear of death. So if that's me, despite the fact that I rarely, if ever, envision myself in a coffin, then what is lifelong bondage to the fear of death? Well, I think what Hebrews is pointing out here is that all the human emotions on the spectrum of fear from nervousness, worry, anxiety, all the way over to panic, terror, and horror. All of these emotions are related to the presence of death in the world. The reality of death is, is, is a principle. It's a, a principle that shot through every aspect of the human experience so that every part of our lives is, is tinged by the, the presence of death, so the, the fear of death, may wear a thousand faces, but they're all expressions of the same underlying principle, that, that life is too short to offer all that we hope for out of it, all that our hearts long for. One person may express this by by frantically chasing achievement, but there's always this gnawing reminder that that even as you're chasing the achievement in a career or some other aspect of life, that we're working now because we'll grow old and retire and then Die. Do, you, do you see how our vision of our lives is, is shaped by this kind of 80 year timeline that gives birth to both hopes and anxieties that follow those hopes what we what we want out of life the, the fear that we might not be able to squeeze everything out of life that we want from it our anxieties are related to this deficit of fulfillment what is a midlife crisis if not the fear of death wearing a mask by a more pleasant name we're, were plagued by the fear of death. And I guess what I'm saying is that it's possible that, that death and the fear of death have become so normal to us that we don't even acknowledge how much of the anxiety in our lives is related to the brevity of life. One author said, death is not merely an event that awaits us, it's a power that rules us. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. The apparent vanity of life. It's all meaningless. I have all these hopes and things I want out of life. I want happiness. And yet all that I seem to pursue, it seems to be meaningless. There's an author named Luke Ferry is actually a professor of philosophy at the University of Paris. He wrote a book called The Brief History of Thought, where he traces philosophical movements from the ancient Greeks all the way to the present. And He argues that philosophy is all a pursuit to deal with the reality of death in the world and to find some sense of salvation in the midst of a world that seems marked by futility. Most of our psychological struggles are related to the fear of death. This is the common plight of humanity. Hebrews is telling us though that the result of Jesus' destructive work against the forces of the devil is that those who once feared death and all of the related aspects of that fear have now been liberated. There's been Uh, a liberation from that enslavement so that the picture that we have of Jesus in verses 14 through 15 is one of a conquering warrior, one who defeats this terrible enemy and by defeating the enemy liberates those who were held captive. So, the ruinous world that we live in and, and the state of our enslavement to the fear of death actually serves to portray the greatness of God and his ability to undo that enslavement. This shows the grandeur of the Son's achievement. You know, he is our, our liberator, the victorious warrior who sets us free. So, notice what verse 16 then says about this deliverance that Jesus has brought for us. For surely, It is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So this deliverance from the fear of death is a removal from slavery. This is the help that he gives to us, not to the angels, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And in fact, the the Greek verb here for, for help, that he gives help to us, means to to take by the hand and give provision for. It's the same word that is frequently used in Scripture to, provide, to describe the way that, that God helped Israel in bringing them out of slavery in the land of Egypt. So actually, l- later on in Hebrews, it says that God took Israel by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And that's describing the exact same word, this help that God gives us this is what God has done through Jesus Christ. He has taken us by the hand and leads us out of the slavery that held us. So as we reflect on these statements that Jesus came to destroy the devil and deliver us from fear of death, we, we can categorize then some of these, these benefits that Christ brings to us. In his defeat of the devil, we can now pursue eradication of sin. We look forward to the removal of sin from our own lives, even as we pursue that progressively in life now. And secondly, because he delivers from the fear of death, we can expect a kind of transformation at the emotional or psychological level. There's a new experience of life just as the destruction of the devil increases our victory over sin and the eradication of it from our lives, so his deliverance from being enslaved to the fear of death transforms our emotions and the way that we experience life rather than a a dour pessimism nurtured by this sense of futility. Instead, every every occasion that God brings, even difficult moments, are opportunities for us to demonstrate hope, the hope of gospel optimism. Like Paul in Philippians 1 who says um, that I, I am... It's my eager expectation and hope so that now and always, with full courage, Christ will be magnified. He will be magnified in my body, whether in my living or through my dying. You see the optimism in that hope? Uh, It's an optimism that's present only because of the gospel and certainty and the work that Christ has done. These, These truths have to be meditated on. They have to become such an integrated part of the way we view the world that, that these verses actually begin to touch every aspect of our life, every part of our daily routine. Even if you're not reciting these verses as you have a conversation with your spouse or coworker, they are the guiding truth. They are the background that shapes our movement throughout the day. And when you're alone and the the dark clouds of depression are rolling in, these verses should wave like a banner about the victory that is ours in Christ. And in the throes of temptation toward those besetting sins that we each face, we pause and remember, he has guaranteed victory over the power of the devil and, and, and brought the devil to nothing. So how do you integrate this into your mind and your heart? You know, perhaps you feel defeated and captive. How do you move to liberated and conquering? How do you make that shift? Well, let me let me close with some counsel from Galatians. Paul says in Galatians two twenty, um, "I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live; it's not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh." My, my nine to five, my daily, my daily life, what I do in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live by faith in the Son of God. And then a few verses later, Paul s- says to the Galatians, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, to live by faith in the Son of God means to make progress, to go on in the Christian life by the Spirit, not by the flesh. To live by faith in the Son of God means to walk in the Spirit. Paul goes on in Galatians to say that God sent forth his Son to redeem those who were under the law. So then you are no longer a slave but a son. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, you have been crucified. The flesh has been crucified with its passions and desires. So then if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. You see, throughout Galatians, Paul is saying that the experience of living in the flesh what we do every day has to be one of living by faith in the Son of God, which means going on, making progress by the Spirit, which means experiencing liberation, this freedom to which we have been called, which is something we do by keeping in step with the Spirit. In other words, we have to make progress in viewing each day, uh, much like we, we, we begin the day as, as a journey along an unknown path. I don't I don't know what you're going to bring me today. God, I don't I don't know what circumstances lie in front of me, but give me your spirit. And then as we as we go about the day like an unknown path, we're, we're waiting for the Spirit, our guide and counselor to help us place our steps. He is our counselor. He is the wisdom giver. And so we rely on him to help us appropriate these truths, these, these grand truths that, that Jesus has defeated the devil and liberated us from the fear of death. Those serve as the, the perimeter of the path, but, but the Holy Spirit helps us to apply those truths in the. the day-to-day experiences of life. He helps us know what it looks like to take those truths and apply them to our self-pity and our resentment, our pessimism, our lust. If the destruction of the devil and deliverance from slavery to the fear of death are going to be integrated into our daily routine and those kind of characteristic struggles that we have, It will begin then with a heart that is full of dependence on the Spirit, that views each day as an opportunity and a striving to keep in step with the Spirit. So let me pray for us. Let me pray that God would be gracious in helping us to pursue this as, as we give thanks for the victory that Christ has brought to us. Let's pray also that we would become skilled in walking by the Spirit and applying these truths um, to the life that God brings us. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we are grateful for Christ. We are grateful that you sent him to share in flesh and blood so that he might die, but through death, destroy death. We're grateful for this victory. And His as we consider the safe comfort that we have in these these gospel words, we ask that that many more would come to believe in these things. Even as Lindsay prayed earlier, we, we want more people to know this joy. Lord, populate your churches until they are full. We pray that this church would be uh, full of grace in the way that they live, that you would give each one of us uh, your, your kindness and giving us your spirit to direct and give counsel. May our day-to-day be shaped by these twin truths that you have defeated the devil and liberated us from the power he held. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.